Racism is the hatred of a race or of a person who is identified as a member of a race. This is where things become difficult because most of us link race with skin color, but if we were all identical in every way but for the color of our skin it is difficult to imagine racism existing. Racism would probably not exist if like jokes, there was not some basis for the stereotyping. This does not mean there is justification for the hatred. The basis for this usually has more to do with the hater than with the hated. Orientals have been made fun of because of their eyes and the difficulty they have of pronouncing some English language sounds. But then, one assumes the reverse is true in the Orient. Black people feel visible because of their skin color. Nothing brings out meanness in others that demonstrating a sensitivity over some attribute. Fat people do not get mocked because they are fat, they are mocked because they are sensitive about their weight. White people are mocked, ridiculed and stereotyped as much as any and more than some. We are told we cannot jump, dance or be other than racist, which is a racist argument. The argument is made that because we disagree with the stereotyping, we are fragile. This is more stereotyping. If you see a charity, a rescue mission, an organization working to make the world a better place or designed to end disease or evil, it is funded and staffed largely by white people. Slavery was ended by whites at a tremendous financial and human cost. If there is an organization promoting group interests, it will not be for whites, but whites will be its allies. Whites are not into social justice for themselves, but they are in it for those who see themselves as victims. It was whites who began and pushed forwards the civil rights movement, at no benefit to themselves. Obviously, there is much generalization in these statements. But it has to be true on average, otherwise social justice would not exist. Were whites as they are depicted the civil rights movement would have died out. But we cannot all be victims. There has to be a defendant and for the most part this is now the white race. It is easy to bring a case against whites, we are the dominant political and economic force and have been throughout recent history. It stands to reason if some action was taken that has racial overtones, it would have involved white persons. That being said, given our political and economic position, had we been as racist as projected social justice would not have made the headway it has. Of course, this being said, white people are not a homogenous group. The skin might look similar, but the cultures are much different. Social justice has largely been a concern of those of British heritage, not because of skin color but because of the British legal system. British law left us exposed to all kinds of litigation not available to groups harmed by other colonial powers. Can one imagine blacks bringing legal action against any of the Islamic nations involved in the slave trade? This is said to point out that social justice is not about the litigant and the harm they suffered it is about the defendant and the legal system he has established. The plaintiff cannot bring action against a slave owner if slave owning is legal. The state must first make the practice illegal before harm can be established. It is not actionable if a bird in season is shot, but it is actionable if the bird is owned by another person or it is not hunting season when it is shot. Social justice assumes a social conscience in two parties, the wronged and the wrongdoer. But above all the legal apparatus has to exist to make a complaint actionable under the law. But true social justice is rarely about individuals or even law. Social justice is an attempt to engineer society. This is where social justice becomes racialized. Race is a factor that is used to push a much deeper and darker agenda. Social justice does not start from law. 
It is less retrospective than the legal system. Social justice is ontological meaning it looks forward to an ideal state. Its starting point is sometimes human rights and in America, the Constitution. When people are issued guarantees to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, there is always the chance that someone will file a claim. Social justice assumes society is heading towards a particular outcome, or that there is a social outcome that is the preferred one. Social justice warriors assume that there is a certain standard we all have a right to because it represents a state of being we are entitled to. Without explaining what this outcome looks like the assumption is that whatever it is, we all ought to be heirs to it. Let us look at this assumption more closely, in detail. The first general and universally accepted principle is that we have a right to life. No one believes this right to life exists in a literal sense. The phrase is catchy but using it creates a problem of interpretation before we start analyzing how to fulfill its promise. In this place we assume it means no one has the right to take the life of another person, at least unless they have been given the legal right to take the life. This means there is no right to life. If the right is not inalienable and absolute it is not a right, it is a benefit or an entitlement. There is a legal right to life, there is a legal protection of life, which is contingent and provisional. We are entitled to life up to a point and to a degree but in the in the final analysis our life belongs to the state, and we are entitled to it only under certain conditions. The same things could be said about the equality narrative. It may be claimed we have equal rights, but no one knows what our rights are or how to measure them. Regardless of what your answers are, there is no equality and there never will be, not in any objective sense of the term. Rights are what they say they are. There is no metaphysical or empirically provable source of rights. The sprinter is never going to be the equal of the wrestler who will never be the equal of a physicist. And to take resources and attempt to make them equal is going beyond simple madness. To take the most simple interpretations of equality, which is equality of earnings, why ought a person doing what no one else on earth can do, be paid the same as someone doing what everyone on earth can do, without exception, namely doing nothing? But this is what the equality narrative leads us towards. But even if we insist that despite some unfairness, we will pay everyone the same rate, regardless of job or its performance, how many will work, let alone do a good job? If there is absolutely no chance of improving your lot, what is the incentive to work harder or to improve one's skill level? What is the incentive to put the right person in the right job? If you want to be a sprinter and no one is permitted to be ahead of the slowest runner on pain of disqualification, how hard would the best runners train? Progress is based on one person seeing a benefit in finding out where the rest of the world went wrong. How much of this work would a radically equal system allow? How much progress is possible in a system where equality is the primary good? Communist countries have a difficult time motivating people or encouraging innovation because these actions create inequality. What creates greater inequality than one person discovering that the entire world believes a lie or does things in a way that is wasteful and wrong? The answer to these questions is the equity movement. In this understanding, if a person cannot run fast, we need to put more resources into their training and also put less effort into training highly gifted runners. People are helped inversely to their ability to advance because of the help. The more incapable you are, the more help you are entitled to, which suggests the dead ought to obtain the greatest level of assistance. While we are all aware of trickle-down economics, a theory which tells us the rich getting richer will create more jobs than putting this wealth into the hands of government, 
we do not seem to give much thought about trickle-down culture. This idea tells us that allowing the brightest and best to innovate with the least hindrance will do more for the least advantage than allowing the state to decide who will do what, where and when with what. In other words, conservatism is a theory that says it makes more sense to do all we can to give Michelangelo time to paint instead of using our time and energy in forcing him to spend his time helping paraplegics to paint. What conservatives want is innovation decentralized in contrast with administration centralized. But we could talk forever about which is marginally better than the other, conservatism or liberalism. When considering the left and the right and their various institutions, it is obvious both have their good and bad points. Capitalism is not perfect and communism, while designed to correct the ills of capitalism, did not create a perfect solution. But it is the liar who claims one or the other option has no redeeming features. There are things that attract people to both sides and there are features that repel them from the other option. Why this is so, is irrelevant. All we need to do is admit that neither the left or the right is perfect or has provided perfect solutions. Admit there are people who support one position at one point in their life then leave this to support the other side. Admit your position does not satisfy everyone any more than their choice satisfies your needs. No one can prove capitalism or communism is flawless. You support one and not the other and your neighbor rejects what you support and supports what you reject, but the probability is that both of you are wrong and neither of you are right in your choices. That is, the probability is that both are wrong choices chosen only because you think it is the lesser of two evils. Communism requires the state, and the state centralizes power. Capitalism decentralizes power into more hands and different competing agents, but it still retains the state. This does not make it better it only makes it different. The conflict between the two options has been ongoing, because the two sides use different methods of rating the options. One think capitalism is better because it is freer, and others think communism is better because it protects the poor. If you do not want the poor protected or you do not want individuals to be free to accumulate as much wealth as they can, your choices will be different from those who do. These are not standards, they are preferences. Standards can be quantified. Verification can be done empirically. It is easy to determine if a process increases risk for others by comparing its credits to debits. If an organization externalizes costs onto others, it is evil. Is the system evil is answered by determining if it is fiscally sound. Both capitalism and communism require a state. Both have to rely to some extent on private actions. Neither system is perfect in the way they are modeled conceptually. The way capitalism and communism are modeled are not realistic because they permit fiscal irresponsibility. People can always say the reality is not the same as the model, but the model is not conservative. The failure of the actual to mimic the model is not an excuse of the model, but a condemnation of the model. If the model was conservative and not liberal, it would be implemented as the model. It really is not important to subject these two countervailing models to a lengthy analysis. They have too much in common to make it worthwhile to analyze them as competing options. Neither capitalism nor communism are able to abide by the standard they set. It makes more sense to treat them as variables, akin to a car model with different paint options. Capitalism and communism belong to the same class of things because both have social costs, and social costs are always associated with a social agenda. Social costs are the hallmark of an evil system. 
It is too easy to blame the system, however. The problem is the people who operate the system. It is people who create the social costs. It is people who make the choices and externalize costs. But if some people create social costs and it is possible to not create social costs, there are two classes of persons. We have argued that capitalism and communism are related and part of the same Babylonian system. But it is not the system that is important to us, it is the people who are Babylonians and who create the social costs. It is important not to be part of this system and therefore not be one of these kinds of persons. It is not the systems that need rating or classifying, it is people. If we look at the left and right, we see an externalization of costs. Now you may prefer one way of externalizing costs over another, but that does not make the externalization of costs right, not morally or politically. Nor does it make you a better person by preferring the poor absorb the costs of the rich rather than the rich subsidizing the poor. But so long as we see the left and the right as part of a single human race, we will be analytically corrupted. It is not the type of social costs you create that is important, the significant fact is you are willing to externalize your costs onto other people. No matter how you want to analyze the situation, there will always be this distinction between being fiscally responsible and being a liability. There is a sharp and unbridgeable distinction between those who externalize costs and those who do not. These are two races of persons. They are not just two options available to a single group of persons. This has to be made crystal clear. The concept of race attached to one's skin tone is absurd and leads nowhere because there is no justification for this division. The conventional view of racism produces and encourages social justice agendas to be enacted. The lure of social justice encourages an intersectional narrative to be formed in which everyone strives to prove they are the greatest victim. We can get on the social justice train, or we can divest ourselves of our wealth and eliminate claims against others and live as God told us to live. There is good and evil and right and wrong and the line is drawn where social justice claims end and where faith begins. This is not a political line. The line is not drawn between political or economic theories. The line is a lifeline, it is a cultural line, it is a racial line. The people on each side of the line are of the same species, we are all human but we are not of the same race. We live in distinct cultural and conceptual niches. This might not even be significant, were Babylonians not all social justice warriors who live primarily as intersectional victims demanding social justice from us. Social justice is not the same as jurisprudence. To have social justice requires a power disparity. There has to be a deprived victim and a wealthy oppressor, because if a social justice claim is to be made there has to be obvious deprivation visited on the victim. The social justice wants a supposed property loss to be made good. Thus, social justice always comes down to a transfer of assets. But of course, racism is inherent in social justice and part of the nature of social justice. Racism is attached to the narrative of equity. We just need to stop embracing an absurd understanding of race. If humanity cannot be properly defined by physical attributes, why ought race be linked to skin color? Because we think humanity is a physical class of thing or a class of thing that is defined by physical attributes, we end up believing humanity is or could be homogenous. Any inequality we see is targeted for eradication. Liberals do not wish to see the species diverge from the norm. Resources are dedicated to eradicating any inequality according to the principle of equity.
The more inequality witnessed, the more resources applied to eliminate the difference. So it makes sense to be as victimized as one can be, to increase one's intersectional score. The racial distinction is between those who actively pursue the social justice narrative and those who do not. This is not the root difference, it is a symptom of the difference. It is those who do not pursue social justice who become the victims of the social justice agenda. In many ways the two groups can be seen as aggressors using force and intimidation to extract concessions from a group of defenders. Because this situation is so distinct and the group so dissimilar and the conflict so situationally warlike, the result is that we end up with two races of people. The distinction between the groups is not quantifiable. This is a substance or qualitative distinction. The commitment to social justice is so encompassing and total that it becomes sufficient to be considered a racial distinction. One is either a social justice warrior fighting to increase his or her intersectional score, or one is a person of faith trying to defend what is yours, which is where we get the idea of conservative from. Race is not based on biology. There is no biological lines dividing people. There is either one race, the human race, or two races. The people of the flesh live lives based in the physical body. The people of the spirit live lives of faith. But no matter what you think of race the one thing is certain, social justice is an agenda in which one group of persons targets another group for intimidation and exploitation. These are two groups of people and they are incompatible and racially distinct.